Welcome to the ADV Moto Magazine Podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Slayball, and this is episode three. Uh, in each episode, if you're new to the podcast, we choose a theme for the episode, and this episode's theme is getting sidetracked. So if you've ridden a week, uh, a month, year, years, you've gotten sidetracked, and you know something has happened that has caused you to deviate off your course or what you expected the, the journey to be. And it's how we deal with getting sidetracked that kind of makes the adventure what it is. And on this episode, we have two amazing guests. Um, you'll get to meet Jocelyn Snow, and she is, her, her, her riding story is incredible, and she's a racer turned um, trainer turned now an ADV, uh, competitive ADV rider, uh, most recently in the International GS Trophy um, that she's raised. So we talk a little bit about her career and um, how she got sidetracked and what she did about that. Um, and, but up first is Mark Wallace. And so Mark Wallace is a photographer extraordinaire. And if, if you haven't heard of Mark Wallace, just Google his name. Uh, he's prolific in his photo training. Um, but he's also been riding around the world full time since 2014. And so we talk a little bit about um, his journeys and times that he's gotten sidetracked and where he currently is, which is a quarantine in Argentina and um, how that's working out for him. So uh, we're going to start with Mark. And just a heads up, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a video version as well on YouTube. So some of the stuff that we reference that he's going to show on screen is on the YouTube version. So if you're listening, just go with it. And if you want to see the visual part of it, just log on to YouTube and type in ADB Moto uh, podcast and you'll find it. So let's go. So I'm here with Mark Wallace from markonabike.com. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Mark. Thanks so much for having me. It's sort of an honor to be here. I've been looking forward to this and this is podcast number three. What a privilege that I'm I'm the guest for number three. I can't believe it. Yeah, no, we're we're stoked to have you on. I mean, um, for those of you who who don't know Mark, uh, you'll get to know him over the the next little bit here. And he is a very prolific photographer, uh, writer, uh, blogger, like uh, amazing, amazing. Social stuff. media is in my blood. Maybe that's yeah. how you say it. Yeah, runs through the veins. I love. It. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, just. For people who have never never met you, um, kind of you know the theme on this episode is, is I've uh, we mentioned is getting sidetracked, and uh, you know it's something that I think is uh, organic in you know every trip you take. There's going to be something that happens that you can't anticipate or can't plan, and it's kind of like you know how do we how do we deal with that you know when it comes along, um, and you've done some. Like you've been basically been traveling since I believe uh, 2014. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, that's right. Full yeah. time. So I sold everything I had in 2014 and left. First, I did planes, trains, automobiles, took took taxis, cars, bicycles, whatever. And then in 2016, I I got my GS and I've been riding ever since January 2016 uh, around the world. So I've done all the continents except for Antarctica at this point. Wow. Wow. And to give, to give people an idea of, of where you've been, um, you actually have, have a map. I, I think this will kind of illustrate his point. Yeah. Uh, so here's, here's the, the journey. 
So I began, you know, in 2016 in Arizona and I did my break-in ride. I went up to Seattle. I went to Torotech. I got a new suspension, some things fitted out up there and then back down to Phoenix. So that was about a 3,000 mile ride just to break in the bike, make sure I knew what the heck I was doing, get the gear right, all that stuff. And for anybody that's doing a around the world trip, I highly recommend doing at least a two week test ride. Take what you're planning to take, try it out. If you can, I know two weeks is, is quite a long time, but uh, yeah. So then I made my way through uh, Mexico, Central America, South America, through Africa, Europe, uh, Russia, Siberia, down into Mongolia for just a tiny touch of a, a few days there. It's one of the places I got sidetracked pretty seriously. And then Southeast Asia, Australia, went back to uh, Europe for a few months, back to the United States to do a little loop around the national parks and then back down through South America, down to Tierra del Fuego. And then the plan was to ride up the uh, eastern coast of uh, Argentina and then see some of the places I'd missed the first time through South America, Posadas, and spend some time in Salta, in Mendoza, Iwazu, go up to Rio de Janeiro, go through Brazil, through the Amazon, and do some really cool things. But uh, this little pandemic hit when I got to Buenos Aires, and little did I know that I would be stuck in the world's most, one of the world's most strict and longest quarantines. In fact, I think we're now the longest quarantine. We're still in quarantine. So we've been in quarantine since March 20th. And so it's, what's that, five and a half months that we've been quarantined down? So it's, yeah, um, yeah it's quite the, um, quite the diversion that's, that's happened here. Yeah. Well, Talk a little bit about, I mean, you know, pre-COVID, uh, I, I, like some of the, the some of the times that you've gotten sidetracked, um, you know, be, before be, before COVID, what that's been like. Well, I think that the first big sidetrack, I mean, there's there's being sidetracked for things you can't control, like the pandemic, and then there are being things uh, being sidetracked for things that you have some control over. Like my motorcycle was stolen in London. I had some control over that. I should have had a better security system. And then there's being sidetracked for being an idiot. And that's what happened in, in Africa. Because against all advice, I headed north uh, from, South America, from South Africa, up through Botswana and into Tanzania during the rainy season. And everybody said, you know, just don't do that. And so that was one of my very first hard lessons was, you know, that I was going to go through the, the uh, western side of Tanzania um, and up into Rwanda and then back over and, and sort, of, sort of loop around uh, Lake Victoria. And, and what happened was I got just stranded in this mud. And the thing is, I think if I had a writing partner, I probably could have made it through that journey. There's a video about it, by the way, on my uh, YouTube channel. So it's, I think, Muddy Tanzania. You guys can put links or something, I guess. But um, yeah, so that became just difficult and more difficult and then so difficult that I realized that just picking up the bike over and over and trying to make it through these really, really muddy, horrible roads, I was really going to hurt myself. Or worse, uh, I was in places where there were lions and wildlife that could kill me. It just was not a, a good decision. And so I ended up having to turn around. And I got stuck in Impanda, which is this little town in Tanzania. Uh, so it, that was about a 10-day 
sidetrack. So I got stuck there. Luckily, it, it was really an, an amazing experience because I got to meet a lot of really neat people. There are a lot of people that helped me get out of that place. I talked to a lot of guys that, you know, these, these are places where the maps aren't really super accurate and what you think you're heading into might not actually match what's on paper. And so uh, that was something that was, that was really helpful. And, you know, I, I want to show you, I've got this, uh, see if I've got this picture, I can sort of show you the, the help I had because it was really interesting. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I'll share this with you. So I met this guy in, um, Malawi, who you guys might recognize. So Mark Stevenson. So if you've seen Long Way Round, this is the guy that helped uh, Ewan and Charlie uh, figure out that portion of the, the trip. And so uh, I was able to meet with him. So he's, he's aged a little bit here. <laughs> and he actually showed me like where I should go and the routes that they could take and where the map wasn't matching where the, the actual roads were. And he actually said, you shouldn't do this. You should wait because you're at the wrong time of year. And I didn't listen to him. So that's a, a good example of just being sidetracked because of making a bad decision. But I still would have done, done it again because it was an amazing adventure and a great experience. And I learned where my gaps were in my writing and skills and all kinds of things and got to meet Mark. And So um, sometimes being sidetracked, is not a horrible thing. I guess I would say that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and, and I think the, the other huge time that I got sidetracked was in London. Um, I had my motorcycle parked at a hotel right in front of the, the uh, front desk. There's a big glass wall underneath the security camera in a parking lot that had a gate. And I had my uh, steering wheel lock on. But I had never used a disc brake or a chain or anything just because of the weight on the bike. I was trying to keep everything down. So I had no issue in Central America, South America, Africa, nowhere in the world. I get to London and uh, fortunately for me, when you, when you ship a bike, air cargo from one continent to another, you usually get a window of time. You're not really sure when the bike's going to show up. They'll say it's going to be there within 10 days. And what they're doing is they're, they're looking to see which airplanes have space to throw your bike on to save money. Um, and so different things get priority. So I had purchased insurance for my motorcycle in London for the day that I thought the motorcycle would arrive, but it had arrived two days or three days earlier than planned, which was cool. And, uh, but I was in London and I had my bike at this hotel and some uh, there's in the photography community, there was a little photography magazine that wanted me to come by and do an interview. And so I decided like, okay, I'll stay an extra day. I'll do this. It'll be fun. The next day I woke up and walked out, no bike gone. And so I called the police and the police said, yeah, the way it works in London. And by the way, I didn't know this, but London is like one of the top places in the world for bike theft. I think it's number one. But oh. I had no idea that was the case. I know now. So what happens is a lot of uh, criminals in Eastern Europe and, um, yeah, what they do is they basically put in orders for motorcycles they want. And they come over to London, and because of the way the laws are, uh, it's easy to steal a motorcycle. And so these motorcycles are stolen, thrown on trucks. They go through the, uh, the tunnel, and they're gone forever. So the uh, – yeah, the cops said, you'll never see that bike again. It's gone. 
And because my insurance hadn't kicked in for a couple of days, I was like, well, it's gone. So what do I do? Three days later, I got a call and the police said, well, we found your motorcycle, but it's destroyed. So what had happened is I have a, a Touratech suspension and it's made by Tractive. And when you go full manual on the GS, you have to have this little module that tells the computer that you have a suspension. And so it says Tractive on it. What the police said is they think that the, the uh, thieves looked at that and thought it was a GPS tracker. And so they just threw the bike off the back of whatever truck they had it in and it you know, went end over end. So the front stanchions, the windshield, the handlebars, the mirrors, the back uh, wheel was cracked in half. The luggage racks were destroyed. The rear subframe was shifted over. It was substantial damage. And so it was about uh, 10 weeks that I had to wait in London for BMW to repair and get all the parts and all that kind of stuff. And uh, if you've ever been to London, it, you know, it's just not cheap. I think it was like the cheapest hotel is maybe 120 bucks a day, something like that, which is way beyond my normal <laughs> budget. And so uh, that, that uh, derailment that's being sidetracked there cascaded into this, this over a year long event. So what happened is the money that I'd planned on, on using to get into Russia and Siberia, I didn't have anymore. And so then I had to wait a few months. I had to sell some photography equipment that was, it was painful to sell that stuff, but I needed to. And then by the time I got into uh, Russia, which is a difficult process to get all the visas and paperwork, it was uh, August, which is really late to cross Siberia. So you don't want to be crossing Siberia in August and September, which is what I did. And so uh, by the time I got to Mongolia, I'd planned to dip down into Mongolia and ride Ulaanbaatar and then back up into Russia. What happened is the rivers were, were rising because it was rainy season again. And so I started crossing these rivers, realizing that the rivers in front of me were rising and I wouldn't be able to cross them. So I would be stuck in Mongolia. And so I um, was on a mountain and I was using my, like one of these guys. So if you're a solo rider, you've got to get a, an inReach. It's a lifesaver. So I was using that to text my brother who was in Kansas. He was looking at weather reports and maps and all kinds of things. And we spent about six hours going over the route and trying to figure out, was it possible to make it? And the answer, and I'd also talked to uh, many friends that had done this, this route before and the consensus was you could probably do it, but you're putting yourself at pretty, pretty high risk, especially at that level of riding experience I had off-road on gravel. And I was absolutely alone. And if you've ever seen or been to Mongolia, it's not like if you have an accident, somebody can come and grab you or even throw in a helicopter. I mean, it's, you're in serious uh, trouble if you get stuck there. So I decided to turn around and go back, which is one of the most devastating decisions I've made on the entire journey because I really wanted to do that part of the trip. Um, but that decision to turn around turned uh, just that same day. I went to the same town I'd gone through, the first big river crossing I'd made, and the local townspeople were like, hey, how did you get across the river? I'm like, oh, I rode across it yesterday or two days ago, I think it was. And they said, that's just not possible. There's no way you could have done that. I'm like, I did it. 
And they said, well, there's no way because now it's, it's very, very deep. So you'd have to have like a big four-wheel drive or Unimog or something, a tractor. Yeah. And so one of my friends, Alethea Sarnosa from Madrid had done this route. And I remembered a story she told me where she had to find a local farmer with a tractor to get her across one of these river crossings because it was just too deep. And so I thought, I'm going to do that. So I found a group of guys and they threw my bike in the back of this little trailer. And uh, I've got pictures of this somewhere. But anyway, we, uh, I made it out of Mongolia by the skin of my teeth. And, you know, I was really depressed about the whole thing. But the, the nice thing about it is when I got back to Russia, I met a bunch of people that I would have never met and had this sort of a crazy experience with these college kids that were asking me to talk to them uh, using English slang. And they would say, we want you to say shifty drifty. I'm like, I don't know what that is. <laughs> say shifty drifty, shifty drifty, like the Americans say shifty drifty. And so that's my motorcycle's name, shifty drifty, because, you know, shift them ah, from Mongolia and this whole experience and these Russian kids that wanted to say shifty drifty. So that, I mean, getting sidetracked can be just a really amazing part of the experience if you have time. Um, so a friend of mine who's also a world rider, Polo Arnaith, he says, the plan is no plan. So if you have the time, and that's, that's sort of the mindset to go into one of these really long trips, because it's not, you know, uh, if you're working in a job and you've got two weeks and you're going to go from Arizona to Yellowstone and back, you don't have that kind of freedom. You really have to plan things out and know how many miles per day you have and your mileage and budgets and all that kind of stuff. That is a radically different kind of trip and a worthy experience. And everybody should do that. If you can do that, if you're doing around the world trip, something that you're planning on taking a year or two or six months, something that's much longer, you have to be ready to have these things that happen that, absolutely radically sidetrack your journey and then not be frustrated with it because it's not being sidetracked. It is the experience. That is the experience. So when you're, you know, you lay your bike down or you get diverted, you get lost, something happens. That's why you go. That's what you're there for is to learn, you know, how are you going to react? How is your personality going to hold up against this, this challenge that you're facing? And so I know it's, you know, what do you do when you're sidetracked? I say you rejoice in it and you grab it and you sort of take all you can from that experience. And you'll find out that it's the reason why you travel is those unexpected things. That's, that is why you travel. At least that's why I travel. I want to see the things that I have no idea I'm going to see. So it's yeah. wonderful. Um, yeah. 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 So there's a, I, I think there's a point in, experiencing that where you can like fight against it or you can go with the flow, you know, cause I think I I've had, the, you know, those times when it's just like, you feel like everything's going wrong and then, you know, you, you feel like things are imploding and you know, this isn't what I had imagined it would be. And, you know, and then you just kind of have to get a, get to a point where you just kind of like go with the flow and say, well, this is what it is. And I can either get like, really angry and, and frustrated and just self-employed or like step back and kind of reframe what's, you know, my perspective on everything here, you know, and it's, yeah, it's hard to like kind of what you said, you know, for when you have, you know, so much like money saved or you're trying to budget, you know, and figure out like, 
you know, what you can do. And then, you know, something like, I can't imagine like having my bike get stolen, <laughs> you know, that's like, that's a, that's a it major, that's a major setback. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, and yeah, you have to, you have to go into it like it's a relationship. And there are, there are times when you're on the journey and things are not happening the way that you expect them to happen. And it's, it's emotionally, uh, psychologically unhealthy. And uh, that's a kind of a sidetrack that I've also experienced. And that's a different thing that you, you've got to take care of yourself and get out of that. And so specifically when I, I was in Africa, I was taking some anti-malarial pills and they have warnings. This can cause uh, severe anxiety. It can cause depression. It can cause uh, hallucinations, um, all kinds of really nasty things. And so when I got them, I posted on Facebook, this is years ago that, Hey, I've got this, I'm going through Africa. And it's, there's a kind of pill you take every day, which is what I'd normally take or one that you take once a week. And so because of space, things are so limited in space. I said, well, I'll just do the one a week pill. And people were like, don't take this drug. It's really nasty. Like I've never had an issue with any drug ever. I think I'll be okay. And so I was taking these drugs and I, I didn't realize at first what was happening to me, but and then this is after being stuck in Tanzania and all of that, but I would um, sort of par for the course in parts of the world as being pulled over for nothing and having to bribe a cop to keep going. That's very common in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And so after a while, it just sort of grates on your nerves. And so <laughs> I would be pulled over for like going too fast through the middle of nowhere. And, and I'd be doing maybe 50 kilometers an hour, like this, nothing. <laughs> and so uh, at one point I was just yelling at this police officer and just like, yeah, I've got a video of me somewhere. I filmed myself because I, I was thinking this is not me, but I'm just like road rage. Ah. And then I had, uh, I was getting really crazy and depressed. I had a lot of anxiety. My dad was getting, he was really sick. He was fighting cancer. And so I was going through all this turmoil. And at the same time, I was in a place where nobody could speak English at all. So usually if I'm in a country uh, in most of the world, there's somebody that can speak English. But in parts of Africa, there are long segments where there's just, you, you have nobody to talk to at all. So it was just in my head, there was no internet, no Wi-Fi, just some texting through my inReach. So I was getting all of that uh, depression and anxiety. And, uh, and then one night I was in my tent and I woke up and there was a snake that had grabbed my arm. And so I'm swinging my arm around. There's this snake. I grab it. I throw it across the room. Blood's coming out. And then I'm like, whoa, none of this is real. It's a hallucination. So none of that happened. It was just like those drugs. Okay. And I finally, I got to Kenya and I thought, I, I need to stop this because now it's unhealthy. I'm, I'm afraid for my own mental health. And so I did. So I flew uh, into London and I stayed for a couple of weeks. That's when my motorcycle was stolen actually was after that. And the, the nice thing about the curse and the blessing is, so I was in this sort of mental state where I needed to let these drugs sort of get out of my body. It takes about two weeks. I was in London. My motorcycle is stolen. I have really good friends that live just South of London and Gatwick. And so I went to stay with them and BMW said, it's going to take a few weeks. 
So I got to hang out with these really good friends for a couple of weeks at their house and just sort of regain my emotional health and let all that stuff get out of my system. And so again, being sidetracked turned out to be this really amazing gift to help me recenter and refocus and then continue along the journey. And so it is a very frustrating thing, but you know, looking back in hindsight, you know, I don't wish my motorcycle had been stolen, but I'm glad I had that time to, to reset and, and go forward with the trip. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I think that comes, it, it's it, the, one of the things you're touching on, I think is gratitude, you know, that gratitude yeah. of, you know, I think when we get to travel, you know, travel hum- humbles us. And cause when we see and experience other cultures, um, you know, we, we see the commonality of humanness around the world. Um, but it also gives us a, a healthier perspective on, you know, what we grew up with, what we consider normal, right. For, for our environment. And, um, and I think yeah. it, and I think the ability to travel is, is, uh, it, uh, at least for me, I'm always filled with gra- gratitude that I have, you know, this opportunity and this ability and, and, um, yeah, sometimes that, that, you know, helps <laughs> when I'm in the it midst does. of a sidetrack, you know, you're getting sidetracked or like, you know, wait a minute, let's, let's back up here. You know, there's, a, there's, you know, probably dozens of people that would love to be doing what I'm doing right now and, and be on this adventure. And, um, it, it does. And it, the, the travel specifically for me to be out of the United States for so many years at this point, has helped me reframe what I, uh, understand as uh, success. So, you know, in our culture, success is uh, fame or influence and power or money. Those are the really the three things that we, we revolve around and think are successful. And it, it happens in the most informal ways. When you meet somebody new, the first thing you say is, what do you do? You're asking, like, how much money do you make, basically? <laughs> are you a doctor, a lawyer? You work, like, what's your job? That's how we identify ourselves as successful or not. And so, um, you know, think of the people that we deem successful. They're politicians, they're actors or singers or wealthy people. And in more rural parts of the world, that is absolutely not what is success. Success is having a large family, having a community that's very close, uh, having time to enjoy with other people having time to enjoy a meal together. Sobra Mesa is one of my favorite things I've learned. So it means on the table. It's when you come together with a group of people and you spend a day putting your conversation on the table and you put your worries and your cares and your joys and all that. And you have this communal day. And in a lot of places, that is a normal thing that happens every single day. And now I'm like, that's success. I mean, could you imagine having that much time where you're able to have uh, freedom from anxiety and the stress of a job and all of those kinds of things. And so yeah, it's, it's just really sort of reshapes the thinking of we have, we have houses, we have cars, we have technology, we have, we have, we have. Right. And understanding that there are lots of people that have, but the things they have are just different and they're no more less than what we have and it's just how you frame and how you understand what success is and what happiness is and so it's just a a travel is a wonderful wonderful teacher yeah so so kind of taking all that and bringing it into 
currently where you're sitting, which is Buenos Aires, I believe, in Argentina. Yeah. yeah. How how does like wh- how how does your current um, I don't know like your your current I don't want to say situation, but but I mean you are kind of locked in Argentina, I guess, under the 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 pandemic yeah. restrictions. You know, how does this sidetrack compare to these past ones that you've that we've talked about today? This one is is uh, psychologically it's very difficult because there is no there is no leaving and so you know uh, I have significant friends in Europe that I would normally see in the United States my bike is here so normally if let's say my bike would, broke down or was stolen or something I could fly out see other people come back and then continue. Here, I can fly out. I can return to the United States. So there are flights leaving Argentina every two weeks or so. So I can get on one of those flights, get to Miami, and from there, get back to Arizona. But I can't bring my motorcycle. So the motorcycle is is stuck here. And if I do that, there is no guarantee that I can ever get it back. So leaving means the, the strong potential that Shifty Drifty, this companion that I've had for years around the world, gone forever that is no that's not an option for me at this point maybe if something happens in the future uh i'll have to to look at that um so that's that's one thing that's that's difficult and then um you know i have a niece and her husband live about a a mile from me here so they just moved here uh the same time i arrived that's why i came here originally so i could spend time with them so it's sort of nice to be able to just zip down the street but because of the restrictions of the, the quarantine here, until just recently, until about three or four weeks ago, just to go and see them was something that was very difficult. So movement around the city has been restricted. Uh, we were limited. You can't have more than two people in your house at any time. A lot of people won't let you into their building. And the, the way that the, the uh, pandemic has affected uh, developing nations is different than it's affected developed nations like Europe and the United States in that uh, the infrastructure and the finances just don't exist for the, the hospitals and the medical care to scale up to the needs. And so because they can't scale up to the needs, they've done the opposite, which is strict, strict quarantines in most of South America, except Brazil. And you can see what's happening there. And so um what happens is uh, you have to just lock everything down. So that's been going on for months and months. And that psychologically is difficult because I have spent just weeks at a time alone in this apartment. And, you know, my interaction with other people has been on zoom or WhatsApp um, or, you know, the coffee shop down the street or something, but I have been learning a little bit more practicing my Spanish. Español es mejor. And so that's, that's been a blessing, but, um, yeah, I hope the borders open sometime soon so I can get moving, get zipping along. Originally I'd planned to come down from the United States and stay in Colombia. So I was going to stay in Medellin. It's one of my favorite places. My trip around the world I'd finished and I have about four years of content, of video that I haven't been able to edit and publish because I make a significant portion of my living by making videos for Adorama TV and other photography sponsors. And so I have to, when I make a video, I have to choose the one I'm contracted to make or the one I, I 
can make for free. And it always has to be the one that pays the bills. And uh, also I just haven't had the computing power to edit 4k videos, a bunch of things. So my plan was, Hey, I'll get to Medellin. I'll get a new computer. I'll just sort of camp out there from Colombia. It's a quick trip up to the United States. I can come up there for a couple of weeks, come back. I was planning, I have a little apartment in Paris that a friend owns that he said, Hey, you could stay there for the summer. So I was going to go to Paris and stay there for the summer and come back. I was just going to write and edit and publish. So I was planning on being in South America all 2020 anyway, with some exceptions of some trips. But some friends said, Hey, last time you were in South America and you wanted to go to Patagonia all the way down to Ushuaia, you were here in winter. So it was August. And so you can't, it's just deep, deep snow. I guess you could, but I can't. And so I realized I'm like, Hey, it's, it's November. I could shoot down there and then just take some time, come right back and then still stay in Medellin and do my trip. So I didn't make it back to Colombia. I got stuck here in Argentina, but the truth is I was planning on being in South America anyway. Um, so it's, it's not what I'd planned, but it's not horrible. And Buenos Aires is an amazing city even shut down. It's an amazing, amazing place. I've got great friends here. So um, yeah, it's not what I planned, but so far it's not, it's not horrible. Yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of still, still in the, in the making of that, of that story for uh, <laughs> maybe we'll have to revisit, uh, revisit this a year or two from now and, uh, and, yeah. uh, and see how things turn out. Yeah. That's been one of the cool things uh, kind of watching um, on your social feeds, just, you kind of i don't want to say you know making lemonade out of lemons because it's not it's not all lemons but you know just kind of making the most of the situation and being in one place because i i know like that feeling when you're you're constantly moving and um you know you never get the time to kind of dig back into your your video archives especially if you're constantly um accumulating you know content and to be able to do that and it's been kind of cool to see um you have teased a little bit on your youtube channel of like stuff to come and and yeah there's some cool stuff i cannot wait so the entire thing that happened in russia and mongolia and getting stuck in those river those those crossing all that stuff that is uh ready to be edited i have a new computer that's going to be here in seven days i think i can't wait um so that's all loaded up ready to go so i've been cataloging all cataloging all that stuff i'm beginning to show First, though, the trip through the Carretera Austral, which is uh, Route Siete. So route, route 7 through southern Chile is, I think, one of the most amazing roads in all of the world. I'd put it on my top three. If you're considering a trip from, like, the southern part of Chile where all the rivers and lakes and everything start, um, go there. It's amazing. It is amazing. And most any rider can do this trip. It's dirt and asphalt. There are some really amazing... Uh, more difficult roads that you can go down if you choose. But if you're, you know, an intermediate rider and you've got a couple of weeks, you can rent bikes in Santiago, Chile and ride down. So if you, you know, if it's something that you're, you're hesitant because of the shipping and getting everything down to South America, there are options for that. So anyway, there's a video coming on that. There's the stuff that happened in uh, Africa that I'll be editing all the Russia stuff. There's a trip all the way around uh, Australia that's going to be published. So, um, and then I'm going to recut a bunch of the videos that I did previously because it's a lot of me talking to a camera in my helmet. So we're going to sort of trim those down. So they're not like 30 minutes of me filming the road. Um, 
Turns out nobody likes to watch just the road coming at you. So who knew? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, thanks, Mark. Thank you for taking the, the time out today. And, and um, yeah, this, I'm excited to see those videos. We're, um, obviously, we, we mentioned your Mark on a Bike uh, website. Does that kind of get everybody, if they want to kind of keep up with um, your, yeah. your videos and journeys and stuff? That's the place to go. I mean, uh, honestly, the, the daily day-to-day stuff, because it's so difficult to upload when there's poor Wi-Fi, I've learned that just throwing stuff up to Instagram is much, much easier than updating the blog all the time. So I've actually integrated Instagram to markonabike.com. So if you go to Mark on a Bike, you can find the Instagram feed. You can find all my YouTube videos. Um, and if you just forget where to go, just go to markwallace.com. If you're a photography junkie, you can go there. You can see all the photography content. I think I've made close to a thousand photography tutorials on YouTube um, and Creative Live and through Profoto and Saconic and Pocket Wizard and X-Rite and I don't know, fill in the blank. Um, Just Google Mark Wallace photography and you'll get more than than you care to see actually (laughs) or mark wallace motorcycle and you'll get my alter ego awesome awesome well cool well thanks again mark and uh yeah hopefully we'll we'll our paths will cross and uh we'll see you down the road thank you so much for having me it's been really a privilege So as I mentioned on there, we'll put links to that Muddy Tanzania video and some other Mark stuff on our show notes for the podcast. So if you just Google ADV Moto Podcast, it'll take you right to our page and you'll be able to find the show notes for episode three on there. Next up, Jocelyn Snow. And before you meet her, just take a second to put yourself in her shoes. What if you had an injury that was, say, a career-ending injury if riding motorcycles was your career? Um, what what would you do if a doctor told you you would never ride again, you know, or someone told you you were too small or that you weren't able to do something? Well, I'm excited for you to meet Jocelyn. So I'm here with the can I say world famous Jocelyn Snow? <laughs> I don't know, infamous maybe. <laughs> world infamous Jocelyn Snow. Welcome to the podcast, Jocelyn. Ah, thank you so much. It's such a privilege and a pleasure to be here. No, it, yeah, it's wonderful to have you. And I'm, I'm excited. So we, Jocelyn and I have just been chatting a little bit uh, via email and uh, here just before we started recording. And um, she's like, she has some amazing stories and you guys are in for a treat. Uh, but first off, I would, one of the things I like to ask people is how did you get into riding motorcycles? Because everybody has a different kind of origin story, so to speak. And, and what was yours? Sure. Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, but nobody in my family or family family or my grandparents, nobody rode motorcycles. Nobody in my neighborhood. I don't even think anybody in my town, maybe not even. Yeah, no, nobody in my neighborhood rode motorcycles. Um, what happened was I, I came across a magazine that had a Kawasaki dirt bike on the front cover. I don't know. Don't ask me where I found this magazine, but I thought it was pretty cool. And so I started asking my parents if I could have a motorcycle. Now, my mother was uh, the administrator at the hospital, (laughs) and my father was the principal of my school. And they they were like, no, absolutely not. Are you getting a motorcycle? And I would leave the magazine all over the house and 
you know, post pictures up and they were like, nope, nope, nope. So I was a stubborn little brat and um, I had a paper route and I started paying this kid at school 10 bucks a week for a KDX 80 dirt bike. And I don't know, I feel like it, it took me a year. Now I am uh, 12 years old by the time I finished paying this bike off and I needed to learn how to ride it. So I took the school bus to his house and he kind of gave me like a little lesson. And then that weekend, his parents dropped it off at the end of the driveway on a milk crate and took off. That's how I got started riding bikes. And nobody told me that you had to mix oil and gas together or you had to lube your chain or check your tire pressure or clean your air filter. So I made like every mistake possible with motorcycles, it seems like. I learned the hard way, you know. But uh, yeah. I, got, I was able to keep it. Um, they used it as a nice form of, um, you know, keep me disciplined, I guess. You couldn't ride the bike if I didn't behave myself or, you know, do my chores. So yeah. that's where it yeah. all started. I can only imagine if your mom was an administrator at a hospital, she was probably super uh, conscious and, and, and maybe super worried, you know, probably seeing the the cases that would come in, you know, from motorcycle accidents, you know, that she'd probably, it was probably like, no way, no way. Yeah, it's true. And she would tell me, she would say, you know, today we had a guy came in that crashed on the bike and we had a wire brush and we were scrubbing gravel out of the cuts on his skin. Is that what you want? <laughs> you know, and, uh, I don't know. For some reason it didn't, uh, it didn't deter me any. And, and, uh, and that's how, that's how we got going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so let's talk about, so the, the story that I'm really excited to hear is, is about you racing in the, um, international, uh, GS, the BMW international uh, GS trophy, but take us how, before you tell the story, how did you get from your, you know, dirt bike at, at 12 years old to, you know, being a competitive rider, you know, riding internationally uh, in the, the international, the GS Trophy race. Sure. Yeah, it's, it's quite a story. So I had that little dirt bike and, you know, there was no place to ride in town. So I would push it about a mile and a half. I think it was uphill both ways. At least that's how it felt, you know, <laughs> to this little sand quarry and try to learn how to ride this bike. Eventually, um, I figured it out, and then my next motorcycle was a, a Ninja 250 for a very short time, just a few months. And then immediately, I went in and purchased a, a Ninja 750. So that was really like my first real bike, the ZX-7. Um, from there, I did a bunch of drag racing and stuff down at the at the airport. We used to have drag races on the weekend. Um, and then eventually, I decided I wanted to do some road racing. I had no idea really kind of how to get into it. A friend of mine said, well, you can take this course and you can get your racing license. So I started doing uh, amateur road racing and eventually got, I think it was about a year from the day to the day, a year to the day when I got my amateur racing license, I got my pro AMA racing license. Um, and so I was uh, racing uh, TZ 250s, uh, <laughs> AMA, doing, you know, having fun with that. 
I had dirt bikes. I was doing some motocross, a lot of flat track. Uh, when Supermoto came out, I did some Supermoto racing, uh, hair scrambles, uh, and then different enduro races. Pretty much, I think I did just about every aspect of, of motorcycling, every type of style of motorcycling except trials riding. I, I didn't get a chance to get into any of that really. Um, and so that's where I was progressing. And then I had, I was racing in uh, Daytona and the weather had t made a drastic change. And those bikes are, they're, they're pretty finicky when it comes to jetting, the air density and the temperature and the humidity. And I, I had the wrong nozzle jet in that bike. And coming down the front straightaway, uh, the bike, the, the motor seized as I was heading into turn one, which caused a, an awful mess. I ended up colliding with another rider. Um, we were both okay, but I ended up breaking uh, a vertebrae in my neck and my back, uh, six ribs, uh, right ankle. I, I forget. It, it, was a, it was a list anyway. Uh, it was funny is my race vehicle, you know, everybody has like their race vehicle that they tow around their race bike and all their tools with. Well, my, my race truck was an ambulance. I used ambulance. So this was in Daytona, Florida, right? So by the time I got out of the hospital, I got to ride in my own ambulance all the way back to Maine where I was from. So that was interesting. Um, but the recovery from that was pretty brutal. I was in a wheelchair and I had no movement of my left arm. I could wiggle my fingers and my hands, but I, I couldn't I couldn't lift my arm up on its own. And the doctor I went to was like, you know, you have some some serious nerve damage, it's not gonna be fixable, and the chances of you ever riding a motorcycle again are zero. So that's not gonna happen. And that was pretty tough to hear, you know, because uh, I had made motorcycles such a big part of my life. Like that was all I knew. That was like my joy. That was my um, escape. That was my fun. That was my adrenaline. Everything revolved around motorcycles in some shape or form, you know, one way or another. And that was difficult. At the time, I had my own business. It was a sign company. It was, uh, and, and I don't know if you can imagine, like trying to put graphics. I remember trying to put graphics on this guy's speedboat in a wheelchair with one arm. <laughs> Not so good. So I was, again, remember now I'm that stubborn girl still, just a little older, and I decided that I wasn't going to accept that uh, decision to never ride a motorcycle again. So I told all my friends that I was going to try everything there was to try, and they started handing it off to me. I did the, the Nikon magnets. I did the Reiki, hypnotism. I mean, I did these special diets with like just vegetables. I, you name it, I tried it. And I ended up getting movement back. And it was bizarre because it was almost overnight. Like, like within a couple of days, I, I started to have movement back in the shoulder again. And it got better and better and better. And eventually I was able to put my arm up over my head 
And as soon as I was able to do that, I got on a motorcycle and I rode right by that doctor's office and I made sure I gave him like a really friendly wave and told him that he was number one. And uh, it felt so good. did a burnout in front of his front door, right? Yeah, it was amazing. It felt so good. Um, and so here we go, getting uh, back into riding, but I didn't think I wanted to get back into road racing. It, it, hmm. it maybe did. It scared me a little bit. Um, that the risk, you know, involves some high speeds and, and not only that, I want to say maybe more than that, it was, it was financial. I mean, even with sponsors at the time, I think there was only one or two of us women road racing, you know, on the pro level, there it one or maybe just me and a couple others possibly, but, um, it, I hope you can pause your video at this point because now I have to stop and think about what I wanted to say. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Somebody just walked by the window and made a big old face, so it totally distracted me off the That's thing. That's all right. <laughs> uh, where were we? So you were, uh, you were, you were getting, you were recovering. You had the miracle. Uh, on uh, Center Street and uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to make sure you're listening. That's your test. Yeah. So, so I, I just I decided that uh, I didn't really want to get back into the road racing because even it was just really expensive too, you know. So I didn't want to get injured. I didn't, I didn't want to spend that kind of money. Um, so I I started doing dirt bikes again, so dirt bikes and hair scrambles and that type of thing. But it, I was looking for a bigger challenge, you know. I was out there riding with the twelve-tooth countershaft sprocket, you know, and the carrying the chainsaw in the back, looking for the most difficult trails and finding like the worst adventures I could dig up. And uh, I just wanted something more, so I went to an IMS show, and they had a booth there with a BMW GS twelve hundred, and it was beautiful. I remember. It was black with all gold accessories. It's black and gold, black and yellow graphics. It was beautiful. And I had the boxes on it, all the extras. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to get that. I'm going to get that thing. And I'm going to take off. I'm going to go to, you're supposed to go to Alaska when you buy those things. Right? That's what I want to do. I'm going to go to Alaska. And I went over to the booth and I jumped on that bike. And I don't know, I'm, I'm five foot one and a half with a 27 inch, if I stretch it, 27 inch inseam. And I sat on that bike with my feet dangling about 10 inches from the ground on either side and I could not get it off the kickstand. And I remember the, the guy in the booth, he was just like, yeah, it's, uh, this may be, it may be a little bit too big for you. So I, I got off the bike and I walked away, kind of felt defeated. Again, somebody telling me I can't do something, right? Oh. So it didn't sit well with me, but you know, I, I guess I thought that that was the thing that you have to have two feet on the ground to ride a motorcycle, right? You have to be able to touch the ground. That's what they said, two toes down on the ground. So I believed it. And then I think we are two years later and I'm scrolling on my phone through social media before I go to bed, like we all do. Yeah. And this video came up of this like 10 year old boy, 10, 11, 12 year old boy with one arm who was golfing 
at a pro level. And it was impressive. And, you know, after you watch one video, it skips right on to like the next video that's similar. And, and it was a, a woman with one arm who was playing uh, in a symphony, uh, playing the violin. So after I shut my phone up, I, I kind of laid there and I thought, well, what's my excuse? I want to take and buy a big adventure bike and go find these huge adventures. And so I'm short, I can't touch the ground. These guys have one arm and they're, and they're, they're at beyond expert level. Like what that's, what's my handicap, you know, what's my excuse. And then next morning I woke up on fire and I, went to the dealership, walked onto the showroom floor, walked over to a GSA 1200 and said, I want to buy that. I hadn't ridden it. And I had only sat on it, what, two years prior? Like I didn't yeah. even sit on it. I want to buy that right there. <laughs> um, well, that, that's another story, but that dealership, they wouldn't sell it to me <laughs> because I thought it was too big of a bike for me. And I actually couldn't get them to sell me the bike. I had to go to another place. but. Wow. That's another fun story. That's a really good story. Um, so I buy this bike and I get this, I get this bike home and I put it in the garage, close the door, go to bed. And the next morning I get up it's Saturday, I'm going to go for a ride and I rip open that garage door and I look at this thing. And I mean, the GSA, this guy behind me here, they're, they're wide. They're so big. And, and I pop open that garage door and I took like 10 steps back and I was going, Oh my gosh, what did I do? That it's huge. And right away I had to start figuring out how to ride it and how to get it up off the kickstand. So I went down to Rawhide and Rawhide Adventures down in Castaic, California. And I took a class, the next step class. And from there I left and I went to Alaska. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Said <laughs> I did 30 days. 12,000 miles um, and it was unbelievable. Just absolutely kind of had the adventure of a lifetime, I'll tell you what. And at the time I, was, I wasn't in the best place. Like I, I had just gone through a divorce and I had a lot of people disappointing me in my life. I, I was a little bit mm, down on humanity, you know, like just mm. not feeling quite Right. Yeah. When I took off on this trip, I met some of the most extraordinary people and I was faced with um, just amazing experiences with people taking me into their homes or, or generosity and, and honesty. And it was just, it was an amazing trip. That's another story. But <laughs> the Alaska trip. Um, and I came back from Alaska feeling like I could ride this bike okay. And I also had restored my faith in humanity. Life was good and my shoulder was completely healed and I'm ready for my next adventure. So I started telling my friends, well, I'm into adventure bikes now. Let me tell you how cool they are. Let me tell you where I went and what I did and who I saw and the adventures that I had. And one of my buddies said, well, since now you're an adventure rider, you should try out for this GS trophy. And I had never even heard of it. I didn't know what it was. So he proceeded to tell me it, it happens every other year. 
there's a GS trophy and it's kind of like the Olympics of motorcycles. So each participating country has a team of three. And then they all go together at some middle of nowhere and compete. Um, and I thought, wow, that sounds amazing. But I didn't know if my skills were ready. So I was a bit hesitant about trying out. So the first year is a qualifier. And then the following year is the GS Trophy, wherever it may be. And then the following year again after that is a new qualifier. Now you can only do this once in your life. You can never do it more than once. So I didn't know if I really wanted to try out. But then he proceeds to tell me that that year, so that qualifier was 2017, that that year was the first year that women were going to be allowed to compete head-to-head -head just like the men, on the same track as the men, on the same bike as the men. So I, he sparked my interest, and then he, I asked him, tell, tell me more, and then he said, well, the previous trophy was the first year they ever allowed women. Women weren't even allowed to do the GS trophy prior to that. Mm. It's interesting, right? Yeah. And that first year, uh, they didn't have to compete head-to-head -head, uh, for the qualifier. Instead, they made a video of themselves, and the videos were put online, and they were judged. So I thought about everything he said, and I, and I thought, well, if this is the first year, really, that women are going to be allowed, and we're going to compete equally and fairly, then I need to do this. If nothing else, because it's it's the right thing to do. I need to, I need to support all these women that, that to be able to do this. Because what if what if they allow women and then nobody nobody goes and qualifies, right? Right. right. So, so I did, uh, but but before I did, uh, the, I <laughs> I built my own course just from watching, looking at videos on YouTube or pictures on the internet to try to get an idea of what this GS Trophy thing was all about. And it's, it's mostly uh, slower riding on very technical terrain, you know, going over logs and rocks or um, using a bit of your brain, but it's definitely a team, a team thing. So a lot of the exercises you do with your team. Um, so I built this course out in some field and I practiced every single night after work. Or from the moment I got back from Alaska, when I signed up for the trophy, to the moment that we had the qualifier was about two months. And I rode every night and on the weekends, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, I ate my lunch and my dinner out there on the, on the field and rode and rode and rode. And, to, and let me tell you what, I laid that bike down a thousand times. I laid that bike, I tipped that bike over. It was upside down more than it was right side up, I think. <laughs> Until I started to get the hang of it, you know, and that's when I yeah. developed kind of my, my way to, to ride the bikes and such. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then off to, uh, they, had, they actually had it at, at Castaic in California. They had the qualifier uh, and, and I was fortunate, to, lucky probably to, to win. Um, and I thought, excellent. And the trophy was going to be in Mongolia, the 2018. So I was so excited. I was going to go to Mongolia. But no, it doesn't work that way. So the top three men become the men's team. So that we had our USA men's team. And the top two women, BMW sent us to South Africa 
to compete with all the other women from all the other participating countries. So we had 23 really good riders, these women, and we all had to compete against each other to make a team of three women for the international women's team. Then that international women's team went to Mongolia to compete with the men. So that was the plan. So I had to go. So after this qualifier was uh, in October, in November, they, I think the end of October or early November, they sent us right down to South Africa to compete again. It was cool. I mean, at first it was like, oh, it's all expenses paid and we get this, this beautiful brand new rally and we're going to go ride for four days. I mean, even if you lose, this isn't so bad, right? So I thought. <laughs> so um, we get there and we're on this big bus, like a big old tour bus. And we're on this bus for two and a half, three hours until we, we end up at country tracks in South Africa. Mm-hmm. And the bus pulls up, and I mean, you can see this looks like a golf course, this beautiful green grass with 23 rallies lined up like someone snapped a chalk line and lined those front tires all up. I mean, just beautiful and sun there setting, and the, they had the big bow flags of GS Trophy all flapping in the wind. I mean, it was great. We get off this bus, I'm dragging my gear bag, and my stuff and kind of they bring us over to the edge of this flat grass field and they line us all up and I'm like this is cool and then they come down the line and they throw a sleeping bag at us and a tent at us and a pad and now I'm holding this and my bag and my helmet and they get everybody done and they stand in the field and they said okay listen up this is your first special test the competition has begun Pick a spot in the field, set your tent up. Make your tent, and they had an example. Make your tent look like this one, which was completely set up. Put all your gear inside the tent, gear up in your full riding gear. Run across the field, jump the trench, go to the table, check in, run over to the bikes, pick the bike that you want, memorize the last six of the VIN, the number played, and the mileage on the bike. Run over to the barn, put that information in, and go. I was like, oh, no. But remember now, I did a little research, right? So I did see all of these tents from the women that competed uh, the two years prior and their qualifier in South Africa. They, They, after they did their video and they got picked from their state, they still had to go down to South Africa and compete again to get on the team. So... I saw all these tents and I thought, wouldn't that be weird or interesting if they happen to have like a tent race? So I went to Dick's Sporting Goods and I found the actual tent and I cleared out a space in the showroom floor and I laid this tent out and I put it up and I took it down and I put it up and I took it down and I put it up and took it down until the sales guy comes over and he's like, so are you gonna, are you gonna buy that tent? And I was just like, no, no, probably not. So, <laughs> but it paid off. Because I had that tent up, gear on, run across, and I, I was the first one over to the bikes, which was a cool way to start. And that was a great way to start off, uh, you know, the four-day competition. Yeah. From there, we went straight into a blindfold ride. It, after that competition, however we finished, they split us up into groups, uh, two, three groups, I think. 
four groups. And then they took us down to the bottom of this hill and they had like a little white dot at the top of the hill that looked like a paper plate. And we're at the bottom of the hill. And since I won that 10 race, I had to go first. So they put me on a bike and then they take this sweatshirt, this big black sweatshirt, and they put it over my head and tie it in a knot. So you can see nothing. Oh, so I man. have nothing to see. And then they say, okay, when I say go, you start your bike and you ride up to the little white dot on top of the hill and stop the bike and get as close as you can to it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <man. laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you've ever tried blindfold riding. I mean, I wouldn't recommend it unless you've got a buddy around. But uh, as soon as you stand up on the bike, you know, we, we really do look where you want to go, right? You go where you look. It's a big deal. Our vision really helps us ride these motorcycles. So as soon as you take that away, even though the handlebars are kind of pointing straight, you cannot tell if that's straight or if you're to the right or to the left. And you get you're, right. you get completely spun around. So, you know, some ladies were riding to the right and the left and you, know, you tip over because you don't have the balance because you don't have the right. things to focus on. Um, what I did though is I listened to those those flapping bow flags in the wind because that's where the chalk line the little chalk dot was and I just kind of rode towards the noise of the flags and stopped mm. and I landed four feet from that little white paper plate dot and <laughs> I was like pretty wow. good uh, I, I mean it wasn't the best finish but it, it was pretty good and, and the Skywalker stuff right there What's that? That's some Luke Skywalker uh, stuff right there. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, that was that was pretty interesting. And that that's the that's the beginning of the GS Trophy. From there, uh, I did. I made the team. BMW decided to have two teams. For the first time, they had two women's teams, which was another big deal. Um, and uh, the other uh, lady, uh, Bettina from the U.S., made the team, which was cool. We had two U.S. people on the team. And then Julia from Australia was on our team. So we had, we had a great team. We went to Mongolia and we had the time of our life. It was absolutely amazing to be, you know, it, maybe it's a little bit about seeing a country you've never seen before. And maybe it's a little bit about riding the, the, that terrain you've never ridden before. And probably it was a little bit about the competition itself too, which is cool to compete. But what it was really all about to me is, is the people. And, and first of all, not just the locals who, who loved us and, you know, and cheered us on and the kids that would come running out of the school and want to see and touch our bikes, but also the other competitors. Because here you are in this, you know, way off, we were in the Gobi Desert. I mean, you're in the middle of nowhere um, with all these other people from different countries who share the same passion as you do, you know, and we're all doing what we love and, and, and getting to learn, you know, each other's cultures and, and, and how their countries are and, and how they ride and, and just enjoy that and share that together. The, the camaraderie is, was, was just, just amazing. It was un, unbelievable. And that was my once in a lifetime experience. And I wanted to go back after that trophy. I wanted to go back to the next trophy so bad. And that, but you can only do it once, right? Yep. Yeah. But they, BMW called me that next year during the qualifiers and asked if I would be interested to go back 
to the next trophy, which was then held in New Zealand, which we just had in February of 2020, as a co-host. Mm. And you still get a bike, and you still get all your gear, and they still get everything covered, and you just can go and you be a host instead of a competitor. So that was that was quite a gift. Well, I mean, that wow, what 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 an honor! It was awesome to be able to. To go and now not from a competitor point of view, you know, and, and have the competition and the stress of the competition itself, but to be able to go and watch everybody else go through what I had gone through two years prior, you know, and cheer yeah. them on and, and, and offer support for them and stuff. It was, it was really, yeah. really neat. So anyone who hasn't done the GS trophy and just watches it a lot, well, I encourage you to check out whatever country you're from, to check out when your next qualifier is, and just just sign up. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? Yeah, yeah, and I think the cool thing that, that really sticks out to me is you wouldn't have had any of those, you wouldn't have had the Alaska trip, you wouldn't have had your GS Trophy stuff if, you know, when this episode's about sidetrack, so I'm kind of bringing it back to that. If when you got sidetracked, that, that accident, right? That accident would, I think that you had at Daytona would put a lot of people out of commission, right? I mean, they would just look at that as like, well, I had my chance, you know, that's, you know, that was the sign to me to end my career or whatever. And for you, it's like, no, this is just, it's a bump in the road, literally, you know, it's just, it's one bump in the road. And had you not, persevered and you know tried to keep putting graphics on with one hand in a wheelchair on speedboats you know and, and keep persevering you never would have had that Alaska trip that restored your faith in humanity and you never would have had those GS trophies that just sound like incredible experiences I mean that's I like New Zealand and Mongolia are both on my bucket list you know places to ride because I just every time I see someone's ride reports or you know photos from there or whatever it's just like oh man I mean we I have you know I'm in in the Pacific Northwest and so there's obviously beautiful riding around here you know but um, yeah, I think like Mongolia, New Zealand are on a on a different different scale, different level, you know. Yeah, yeah they, they they are. They're they're amazing places to ride, and the people are equally as amazing that live there. Um, but but you know you're right, and and I would I would hope that this might be somewhat inspirational to some people, and and they would just don't you know if I could give a message out there, I would just say don't let anybody crush your dreams. You know, don't let anybody take anything away from you. This is your life. And to, you know, either we have our dreams or we live them, right? And so to live them and, and don't give up, you know, think life is hard, sure. But we're pretty capable. And when we set our minds to stuff and we just don't take no for an answer, it is absolutely just astonishing what we can do, you know? And that, thank goodness, I did that. Thank goodness I didn't just listen to the doctor and be like, well, I guess I'm never going to ride a motorcycle again because it, it changed my life. And not just Mongolia and New Zealand, like you mentioned. Um, after I made uh, the trophy team, uh, tour companies contacted me and asked if I would be willing to lead a tour. So, for instance, the first one was South Africa, coincidentally. Um, a tour company called me and said, here's the deal. Uh, come down, lead this tour. We'll give you a bike. Here's the GPS. I mean, all expenses paid. What a deal. 
and, and you can get a cut of the profit if you want, that's fine too. And then I came back from that and I went to Colombia to do a tour in Colombia two, twice. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, just cause I got this bike and then it was Alaska and then it was, you know, Mongolia, New Zealand, Colombia, South Africa. And then it just, it just has gone bigger and better and more awesome from there, you know? And uh, I'm I'm very I'm I'm very fortunate, I really am. And then, but out of all the things I've done and all the cool places I've been, the memories that really stick with me are the people I've met along the way, for mm-hmm. sure, because they inspire me, you know, and and encourage me to to dream big and, and keep going and you know chase my dreams. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jocelyn. Uh, I appreciate your time, you know, coming on the show and sharing some of your stories. And we're definitely going to have you back on the podcast because I, I feel like there's so many, so many more things we need to to hear about. I mean, that that uh, Alaska trip alone, I, I, I can only imagine some of the stuff that happened on there. So yeah, we'll, we'll definitely <laughs> have you back. Yeah, that's just the that's just the base story. From there, there's all the good stories. So we've got a lot more stories we gotta we gotta tell. So I. I, it's been really, it's been such a pleasure and I, I can't thank you enough for, for having me along. And uh, I do, I, I hope we get to do this some more. And thanks to everybody that, that watches and supports ADB Moto. And I, I just, I really appreciate it. Awesome. Thanks, Jocelyn. So if you want to see some more of Jocelyn's uh, writing, some of the stuff she talked about, some uh, really cool pictures from the International Geos Trophy, um, if you go to her Instagram, so it's just Jocelyn Snow, uh, J-O-C-E-L-I-N Snow, um, on Instagram, you can see a lot of that stuff. And again, we'll put all that stuff in the show notes uh, for the podcast. If you just Google ADB Moto Podcast, uh, you can find the show notes there. So up next is reviews from the current issue with Alex Marsh. So I'm here with web editor Alex Marsh from the ADV Moto Mag, and uh, he is one of the uh, contributors to the uh, product reviews uh, this month, uh, specifically on uh, the Euclid uh, Digital and the Tiger, the SRC Moto's uh, Tiger 800 bolt-ons. And uh, yeah, thanks for being on the podcast, Alex. Cool. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you here. Um, so talk a little bit about continuing our conversation from last week with, with David. Uh, just get a, give a brief overview of what the Euclid is and kind of like where it stands in, um, I guess, kind of all the comms that are available on the market. Yeah, it's um, definitely like a, a top level, flagship level communication unit. It It's up there competing with the Senna 50K, 30k and the um, the packed the Cardo pack talks. It's um, it's got all the features that you'd expect out of that. It's I think it was the first one to the market with Bluetooth 5.0, so it handles connecting to multiple devices really well. Um, and it's got mesh pairing, uh, so it's super easy to pair with other nuclear units. Um, but just like any other comm unit, um, you can pair it to other brands, but you know, it's, it's not what they're made to do. So it's not always ideal. Um, but it's, it's, uh, simplified, it's just buttons. It doesn't have any jog wheels or anything. Um, and for the most part, they've made it really easy to use. 
Nice. Nice. Yeah. I like the, the fact that you can um, use it with your gloves on. It has like the, was it like the little laser or the, the something that um, detects where you can just like kind of wave, wave your hand or just touch your hand to that. That's pretty, that's pretty unique. I, I, uh, there's considering the unit I have, which is a, a, a different brand and slightly older um, that, that would have been nice in a, a, a few situations. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes the buttons are high, hard to find with gloves on. Um, I have the unit here. The sensor uh, for the laser is this part on the bottom right here. Uh, but then it also has some other sensors that other units don't have. It's got um, a accelerometer for sensing motion. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the things that it can do is if you forget to turn it off when you put your helmet down, it will turn itself off when it senses when it doesn't sense motion. And then when you pick the helmet back up, it'll sense that motion and pair back with your phone. Um, and then there's also the crash detection feature that it can use that same accelerometer to figure out if you had an accident. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. David talked a little bit about that last week and that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah. And, and I didn't realize that it turns itself off. That's pretty nice. Cause I don't know how many times I've burned through a battery uh, when I stopped for, for gas yeah. and a, and a, like a bite to eat or candy bar or something and, and come back and, you know, like two and minutes down the, the road. Lights <laughs> still blinking when you come back 45 minutes yeah. later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're kicking yourself. But yeah. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Did you, um, what was it, uh, what were the, the speakers like? Cause I know some of them, uh, like when I've used the speakers that come with the uh, units themselves in the past that, um, they just like, there's so much road noise, especially if you have a noisy helmet with a lot of wind noise. Um, this, mm -hmm. uh, some of the race helmets are a little bit noisier. Um, what's the, the, the speakers like as far as, as what it comes with it? So sound quality, the speakers are pretty good. They're pretty big drivers. Um, okay. and generally if you know speakers, you know, that a little bit bigger magnet is probably going to give you a little bit fuller sound. Um, so they do offer a good full range sound and they get really loud. Um, a lot of older comm units that I've used, you are hard pressed to use them above 60 miles an hour sometimes, especially if you wear earplugs, uh, you're just not gonna hear them on the freeway. Uh, mm -hmm. But these definitely get loud enough to hear even um, spoken word things like podcasts um, at higher speeds. And the noise cancellation in the mics is, is out of this world. It uses a dual mic array and um, it just cancels out all, does a really good job of canceling out sound and uh, keeps things clean. Nice. Nice. Was there any, um, like, I, I know you always do like a kind of pros and cons list in, in the article. Uh, were, were there any things that you wish could be, could be better with the unit or, or improved after using it? Yeah, there's, there's three things that um, I think they could improve on. Um, the first one is just the nature of those, that dual mic array. It's a double-edged sword. It's really good at noise suppression when it works, um, but it's hard to set up. It's going to take some trial and error. You're going to be pulling the top liner out of your helmet to move those around a little bit and find the perfect spot for them um, on your first couple of rides. And then um, just the other thing is uh, the way that they have the mics and the speaker set up, there's no option right now to charge and use the same at the same time or to use your own earbuds. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people have custom made 
um, in-ear monitors or you know a particular yeah. set of headphones that they like to use on the bike. Um, yeah. That's that's not an option right now, um, and that is a deal breaker for some people. Um, my friend that I was testing it with, that's how he usually uses his comm units, and so mm. it was um, a change for him to have to use the speakers. Um, and then the last thing is technology related. Um, Uclear has got this really good app with a ton of features and you use the app to change all the settings on the device and um, the app uses your cell phone signal and location for the safety features and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, but the unit is really reliant on it. If you don't have the app on on your phone, it mm -hmm. won't do the um, use safe crash detection or and, and and some of the other features and then the app is pretty reliant on cell signal um, so even parts of the app like changing noise suppression and stuff like that if you don't mm -hmm. have good enough cell signal to have something the app just won't open um, hmm. so that's software that's easy enough for them to fix um, for that app to make it make certain parts of it less reliant on cell signal um, but the, the other two parts are, are, you know, hardware things that people should know about. Yeah. Is it, um, are you able to pair it like via Bluetooth? Like, let's say you were up in the mountains, uh, the back country or something like that. Um, are you able to Bluetooth it to like, uh, one of the GPS like satellite trackers that would be able to send out like a, a accident message through that? No. Okay. Um, that's a really cool idea if they could somehow connect it to a spot or an inreach, if right. that's what you're talking about, yeah. Um, yeah. to to send that without having to hit the button on that. Yeah. But they would probably have to work pretty closely with Spot or Garmin to make that work. Yeah. Um, it does, however, pair really well with multiple, multiple devices. So if you have your cell phone and um, a Garmin nav unit on your bike, you can mm -hmm. pair to both so you can get nav directions and listen to music from your cell phone, stuff like that. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. yeah. So potentially if you were just listening, then listening to music uh, off your cell phone in airplane mode and then had your nav unit, um, you'd be good. You'd be good to go on, on that then uh, with, without needing a cell phone signal. It sounds like. Correct. Yeah. You can, you can still, you know, connect to your phone and and do things offline on your phone it's just there are certain features that you're not going to get if you don't have cell signal cell signal yeah interesting yeah. well cool well good stuff so let's talk about um the uh, tiger so is src uh moto's uh tiger 800 uh upgrades or bolt-ons uh did i get all that right <laughs> yep um okay. so kind of the way I thought about this was, you know, it's an, it's an easy afternoon kind of dress up for your bike with some functionality. Um, SRC Moto uh, makes, you know, pretty nice parts um, for a wide variety of bikes. Uh, the Tiger is one of them, um, and it's what I have in my garage, so they sent the parts for that. Um, they sent me a headlight guard, um, a side stand foot, a luggage rack and a um, rear brake reservoir cover or guard. Um, you know, 
besides Sam's foot and the luggage rack are everyday function items. Mm-hmm. They're super useful for strapping things to the back of the bike and you know stopping your bike from falling over on soft surfaces. Um, the headlight guard and then the, the brake reservoir guard are uh, you know things that are good to have. Headlights are expensive to replace. And then, you know, if a stick does, you know, poke through your plastic brake reservoir, it, mm-hmm. stuff like that can happen, especially if you fall over out on the trail. Um, yeah. You know, this just provides a little bit extra protection. Um, doesn't cost all that much to add, um, especially for that brake reservoir guard. I think that's less than $40 and yeah. uh, makes your bike look a little bit cooler and gives it a little bit more protection. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah. We were chatting, uh, Alex and I were chatting a little bit offline before we started recording here. And um, he actually has an Instagram account. And if you want to see, um, I mean, obviously there's pictures in the current issue, the September, October issue of ADV Motomag. But if you want to see some pictures of all the, the stuff in action, um, if you go to Alex's Instagram, uh, it's, you said it's Marilyn Moto, at Marilyn Moto on Instagram? Yep, at Marilyn Moto on Instagram. And Marilyn is spelled out. It's like, Okay. state Maryland yep. um, and uh, I'm fairly active on there uh, you can check out stuff that's in my feed and then I'm always giving scoops on what I'm reviewing in the stories cool that's pretty good that's cool yeah to be able to get a little bit of a sneak preview of uh, if people are a little bit eagle-eyed they can uh, catch what's coming up in the future issue review so that's right yeah. and if they have questions send me a message I'm always happy to answer questions about gear stuff like that great Sounds good. Well, thank you, Alex. I, I appreciate it. And uh, sounds like your cat might be hungry back there. Yeah, I, uh, I've i got the door shut to the office. And so she's pretty upset about that. Hopefully the interview hasn't picked up all that. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. She got to be a star on, on the podcast. So. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again, Alex. And uh, yeah, see you down the road. See you later. So that wraps up episode three for the ADV Moto podcast. Um, if you want to check out the current issues of September, October issue, um, the print versions anywhere that magazines are sold, uh, or if you go to adventuremotorcycle.com, uh, you can subscribe to the print or digital or both and uh, get those delivered straight to you, which is awesome. And it has a lot of stuff that we talked about, like the reviews from Alex, uh, the KTM 390 Adventure write up. Uh, we talked about episode one um as well as one of the things i was just flipping through it today here and one of the things that caught my eye um they have a section in this issue about uh if you're in a country where you don't speak the language uh what are the do's and don'ts of of interacting you know it's kind of a crash course on um how to be a good human when you're traveling uh and you don't speak the lingo so pretty cool but yeah, and if you want to connect with us, just go, um, you can email us at podcast at adventuremotorcycle.com, and we'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear feedback on the show, uh, things that you would like to hear, if it's more gear reviews or more stories or, I don't know, whatever it is, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. So you can email us at podcast at adventuremotorcycle.com. And yeah, that wraps it up for this week. And until next time, uh, thank you for enduring my helmet beard for those of you uh, watching on YouTube. And until next time, I'll see you down the road.